Amen. Wonderful to see y'all's faces this morning. If y'all would please stand for a reading of God's word. We are going to be Hebrews 10, um, verses actually 19 through 25. I know it might say 20 through 25 up on the screen. And that is located on page 584 in your blue Bibles. There are those blue Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of those home as our gift to you. Okay. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, page 584. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Thank you, Landy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that is found in us in the gospel. And God, as believers, we come into a week of thanksgiving, a week that we've set aside a day of feasting and togetherness, fellowship with our families and friends. And God, we, we recognize, Lord, this fact about our thanksgiving, that all of our thankfulness is anchored in what you have done, Lord. All of our hope is anchored in your goodness towards us, your goodness of provision, your goodness of protection, and mostly, God, your goodness of redemption. And so, Lord, as we consider your words and the the encouragement of your of the writer of Hebrews to respond to your word, Lord. I pray that we would do that with tremendous thankfulness, Lord, and we would turn our hearts towards you, Lord, to uh, anchor that hope that we that we prayed about, Lord, and and to do so with great thanksgiving. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people, and I pray that I would honor and glorify you in the way that I do it, and that your your a spirit would set a guard on my mouth that I would say nothing that, that wasn't of you and that I wouldn't over speak what your word has said or under speak it, Lord God. And so I thank you for that. And uh, I thank you for your help with this. Uh, God, you are my strength um, as I stand before your people. And I acknowledge that before them. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, I want to ask for uh, just a moment to make just a couple of unrelated comments to my message. Um, last week, I shared with you that um, we would be up at Citizens Tower on Tuesday night, this last Tuesday night, um, to make our voices heard concerning the city's consideration of the sanctuary for a uh, city for the unborn ordinance, which would have effectively uh, put in place penalties uh, for abortion that would have kept abortions from happening in Lubbock. As many of you know, Planned Parenthood has re-entered Lubbock with the uh, you know, total intention of uh, you know, 
starting abortions probably sometime in the spring. Um, and uh, as Christians, this is an issue, I've said before, this is not a political issue on which reasonable Christians can both take sides. This is a gospel issue. The Lord is the Lord of life. Amen. And so, and so it was very important to us. So I want to thank uh, the, the handful of you that came out. I'm so grateful for that. That night was an amazing night for me as a resident of Lubbock. 150 people spoke, and the vast majority, I would say 98, 99% of them were believers and uh, that were defending life. And so I want to th- uh, thank uh, the entire city, actually, for doing that. I want to acknowledge, you know, Ginger, she just uh, made a great uh, statement she um, uh, really kind of stood up for some things that aren't generally considered about the after effects of abortion, and um, so I'm grateful for her. Um, Mike Walker is a guest here today with his wife Tiffany, and he spoke at our at our uh, uh, rally at the the Citizens Tower and did a great job. He even actually was sharing with me how he was uh, uh, witnessing about Christ to some some uh, pro-abortion people that were out there with some some very offensive signs. Uh, about how they were Christians and pro-abortion and that sort of thing. And so he very boldly spoke to them. But I want to acknowledge, Raven, if you'd stand up. I know I was going to embarrass you to death, but if you'd stand up. If, I want everybody to look at this young lady. She's a college student at LCU. And she is, they say dynamite comes in small packages. She was a fireball that night. She stood there after waiting, what was it, like three or four hours at that point? She stood there and stood before the city council as a young lady and very eloquently and very concisely told them why they should not uh, you know, promote or, or support abortion in the city of Lubbock. I am, I want to say publicly, I am very, very, very proud of you, Raven. Can we give Raven a hand for that? That was, took a lot of courage and boldness. Rochelle and, and, uh, uh, Erica and, and Dylan and, and Jossie also came out and were supportive there, but it was just a, a wonderful night. The sad effect was that, that your city council voted seven to zero in favor of abortion. And so, but the fight is not over. In May, May 1st, we're going to have a citywide election where we can force the city to do what the city council did not have the courage to do. So we want you to be very engaged in this and to, and to uh, do what the, what the gospel demands. So what I wanted to do, I know that took a lot of time that normally I'd spend preaching from my text, and I'm going to do that. But what I want to do, this is serious, folks. This is really a serious issue. So can we take one more moment to pray and to pray for our city. Would that be okay? Would everybody be on board with that? Um, uh, just out of reverence, I'm gonna, I know we, uh, we're doing a lot of calisthenics here today, but I want to ask you to stand one more time and, um, so that you're fully engaged, and I want you to pray. And as I often do, I, want you to, I am going to lead us in prayer, but I want you to pray from your heart. And here's some things you can pray. I want you to pray that God grants um, our city council repentance. Did you know that their lives matter to God just as much as the unborn do? And and uh, God, the Bible says, is not willing that any should perish. And they've taken a stand against the will of God. And so I want to pray for them, for them to come to repentance and realize what, what has happened and what they've done. I also want to pray for our city, that, that our city would, would uh, continually be a city, no matter what our government does, that proclaims life. So some of you can pray for that. I, I want to pray... 
um, for the unborn that are now under threat by Planned Parenthood and, pr- and pray that they will be convicted by the Holy Spirit, open to voices that would, that would uh, call them to life and, and call them to, to uh, spare the lives of their children. I want to pray for those that are, are neck deep in the, in the pro-life fight that God would give them the strength and the energy to endure um, no matter what the onslaught against us is. And so can you get behind that? All right, so let's pray together for just a a couple moments. Lord, we come to you, and we are so grateful that you are the Lord of life. God, we thank you that. We thank you that, Lord, it was you who took mere dust, and you formed a man, and you breathed the breath of life in them. And, And at that very moment, Lord God, in human history, you made life sacred by doing that, Lord God. And so, God, we pray that you would grant a, the gift, the spirit of repentance to descend upon our city. For those in our city that have turned a blind eye to this injustice, to this evil, Lord God, we pray that you would call them to repentance. Lord, we pray that you would cause us all to speak up in the public arena, Lord God, about such an atrocity. Lord, we pray that you would move on the hearts of those who work in agencies like Planned Parenthood, that, that you would convict their hearts greatly, Lord God, and that you would save many workers out of that clinic into the, into the, the, the church of the living God, that they would be exposed to the gospel and come to know you, Lord God. Lord, I pray that an army of believers would not sit idly by while this is happening in our city, but they would engage, they would show up uh, to make their voice heard, that they would they would talk to people in their neighborhoods, their schools, their workplace, about the seriousness of this issue, Lord God. God, that we wouldn't just agree to disagree with, with the lost about this, Lord God. God, I pray that, that you would, um, God, give us success in our efforts, that... that Babies wouldn't have to die in Lubbock, Lord God. We pray that you would help us to know what to do and to be creative and, and led by the Spirit in our, in our strategies and the way that we address this going forward, Lord God. And Lord Jesus, I pray that everything we do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would be dripping with the same grace that we have experienced ourselves, Lord God. I pray that you would protect our own hearts from hatefulness and and uh, uh, us against you mentality, Lord God. God, I pray that they would that all of us would be uh, willing to make sacrifices and extend mercy, Lord God, to to those on the opposite end of this issue, Lord God, knowing that their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up, Lord, just. Uh, Lord, really just people with, a, with a, a modern day prophetic voice to speak to this injustice, to speak to this evil, Lord God, and, and, and in a way that would, would break the hearts of our city, Lord God. And we thank you for that. We thank you for life. We thank you for our children. And we pray, Lord God, that you would, you would fill this place with many, many more. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be reseated. I promise I'm not going to get you up again till communion. So make yourself comfortable. Um, so thank you for allowing me to do that. This is obviously an incredibly important issue to me. Um, so let's get to the message. We're going to pause 
the series we've been in on the prophet, priest, and king roles only because uh, with my COVID quarantine and some other things, uh, we are kind of got that pushed back. And so we weren't able to finish it before Advent season. We want to really kind of focus on Christmas and Advent. And so we're going to start doing that next week. So I'll pick up the, the series at, the, at either the end of this year or the beginning of next year. And uh, we'll talk about the king. But before we do that, before we abandon that series and go into Advent uh, messages, I want to just share a few more thoughts from the book of Hebrews, where a lot of the thoughts on that series had come from. So last week I shared with you a phrase that applies to Jesus's work that was found four times in the book of Hebrews. That phrase is once for all. And what it means is that everything that Jesus Christ has done for us and that everything he's done to save us is effective for all time. That's good news. You should be excited about that. The, the work that Christ has done that saved you doesn't have an expiration date, and it will never need to be repeated. Past and present and future sins cannot diminish what was accomplished for you on the cross, and it applies to everyone who believes. That's what's wrapped up in that, that simple phrase, once for all, repeated four times in Hebrews. Well, today, what I want to do is I want to look at another phrase that's repeated throughout Hebrews, a much more even simpler phrase than once for all, and it is these, this two-word phrase, let us. It's repeated 14 times in Hebrews, and the idea of let us is the writer is encouraging us to respond intentionally to the gospel that we have heard. It's almost like he's saying, in an expanded way, in the light of what God's word says, let us demonstrate our faith by responding properly. And that's what it means. So uh, the the writer of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 4, will have set up some theological concepts about the role of Christ, about grace, and then he'll say, let us do something about it. So the writer uses let us three times in the passage that we read this morning. Uh, These three instances of let us are unique in that they, they comprise kind of an applicational summation of every major theme of Hebrews. And so we're going to examine those more closely momentarily. But let's look at the other ones. He uses the term let us or the phrase let us five times before chapter 10. In chapter 4... Um, he says, let us fear or let us be cautious is the, is the idea behind that. And he says, let us fear lest we fail to enter into the rest that God's salvation has provided for us. Then he says um, that we should, he says, let us strive to enter that rest. He says that since we have such a great priest in chapter 4, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. It says that again in the passage we read in chapter 10. It says, let us draw near to the throne of grace to find help. In chapter 6, he says, let us leave behind the elementary things of the gospel and strive for greater maturity in Christ. And then he uses let us six more times after chapter 10 in chapters 12 and 13. He says, let us lay aside sin. Let us run our race with endurance. Let us be grateful for the kingdom that we're receiving. Let us offer acceptable worship. Let us bear the reproach of Christ. And let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now, it's important that we understand these 
let us statements as not just rules. It's, it's not just another list of things that God wants you to do. It, they're not just another form, a New Testament form of a Ten Commandments. Or I guess in this case, a Fourteen Commandments. But what they are, as I mentioned, they're logical responses from a heart that has embraced the truth that's found in the gospel. It's it's like he's saying, as I said earlier, it's like he's saying, if this is true, you should respond this way. We always, I want you to understand going forward is that we always respond to the gospel one way or the other. You cannot not respond to the gospel. You will either reject God's word or you'll embrace it and obey it. The only thing that you cannot do with God's word is nothing. You cannot be indifferent to God's word. If someone seems to be indifferent to the truth, what you're actually witnessing is someone rejecting God's word. If someone tells you, I'm not spiritual, I'm not religious, I don't really care about church, what you're seeing at the root of it is not passive uh, you know, indifference, you're seeing active rejection of what God has said. Why is that the case? Because God is in charge. God's the one who gets to make the rules. God is the one who calls men and women like you and I, like, like all of us, to, he's the one who calls us to account. And so when, when God speaks, when the highest authority in the world speaks, there should be a response. Do we all agree about that? And so God's truth demands a response. Jesus illustrated this beautifully in in a parable. In Matthew 21, we read this. Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Sounds like a... Not the right answer you want from your child, correct? He says, I will not. But afterward, afterward's real important in this parable. Afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And, and the other son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. And Jesus asked this question, which of the two did the will of the, his father? And they naturally answered, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness and you, speaking to the religious guys, he said, you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, you didn't afterward change your minds and believe him. This is what Jesus is saying. When people hear what God requires, and they are moved to repentance, it doesn't matter if they began as tax collectors and prostitutes. doesn't matter how they began, because repentance changes the ending. All of us, the Bible says, have fallen short... We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But all of us in this room who are believers at one time heard Jesus' voice say, go into my vineyard. And at that time when we were lost, when we had fallen short of the glory of God, we all responded, I will not. And then something happened, right? Something happened. 
the Holy Spirit came, softened our hearts, and we changed our mind, and we went. We went to the cross with Jesus and found redemption there. Repentance changed the the ending, but if your heart is hardened to what God demands of you today... And what he demands of you is to repent and believe the gospel. If, if your heart's hardened to what he demands of you, being morally perfect otherwise will not help you. Do you hear me? Being morally perfect, being a good guy, having all the rules checked off, if you haven't done what he's asked you to do today, which is repent and believe the gospel, it will not help you at all. You've got to do what he's asking you to do. So therefore, the let us encouragements in Hebrews are there to show us what a proper faith-filled response to the truth of God's word actually looks like. So let us begin to examine the three instances of let us uh, statements found in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, Therefore, brothers, beginning in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in the previous chapters of Hebrews, we touched on this last week, The writer of Hebrews has pictured Christ as our great high priest who has entered the most holy place for us. And he offered there not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood. And it was offered as a ransom for you and I. And because he has done this, you and I can now enter boldly into God's presence which is a privilege withheld from the Old Testament priests except for the high priest and that once a year and that with fear and trembling. But everything that the high priest, this is what I want you to understand, everything the high priest did on every single day of atonement since the beginning never gave the people of God access to God. It only covered their sins for one more year ceremonially it was it, but it did not give them access to God now things are different because of Jesus's priestly ministry now we can not only enter in but unlike the priests of the old testament we can enter in with confidence right where God is right into the presence of God right to access to the place where we have access to the father as Jesus's body the writer of Hebrews describes for us is he, Jesus' body was torn apart on the cross. The curtain that separated God's people from the most holy place in the temple was torn. And now, good news, you're welcomed in to the holy place where God's presence resides. And see, it wasn't only the structure and the access in the temple that was altered. Our high priest who is Jesus, is greater in every way than the priests who serve the Jews. He reigns, he rules over the dwelling place of God, which is no longer a building in ancient Jerusalem. You are the dwelling place of God. And that's where he reigns. That's the temple over which he reigns. And because of this, we can't stand back. We shouldn't stand back. We must not stand back, trembling with fear at the possibility 
as believers that God will judge us, that God will ignore us, that God will reject us. Instead, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of all this teaching about the priesthood of Christ, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So what is a true heart? True heart is a sincere heart that trusts, that is fully dependent on what God has said about us in Christ. What has God said about you in Christ? That you are loved. That you are forgiven. That you are accepted. That you are redeemed. That you are treasured. That you are secure. What a sincere or true heart does is it ignores or it confronts condemning internal voices or feelings that say otherwise. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how often do you have feelings or voices that contradict what the Bible clearly says about what God feels about you? Oh, you're such a loser. Oh, man, you're never going to get over this sin. Oh, you can't get this right. Oh, you know, Jesus, you know, can't stand you, whatever. But when a true heart looks past those feelings or or directly into the face of those feelings and confronts them with the truth of what God has said. We enter into the presence of God with a, with a true heart of full assurance because what God has said matters, because what God has said is true. John talks about this in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and measure and, and reassure our heart before him For whenever our heart condemns us, I don't know if that ever happens to you. That was my question a moment ago. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Thank God. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So we come into the presence of God in full assurance of faith. Again, we take our stand on what God has said, not on our track record, not on our contradictory feelings. Our hearts can be true and sincere because of what Jesus has done. When the tabernacle and the temple were consecrated, the high priest would sprinkle everything inside of it with the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse it of human corruption. But Hebrews says that our evil conscience has been sprinkled clean from all pollution of sin by the blood of Jesus. So we trust God to make this change because I still struggle with sin, you still struggle with sin. We trust God. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We trust God to make this evident in our life, the reality of this evident in our lives practically and daily. But he also says that our bodies have been washed with pure water. Before priests could enter the temple, they had to be be bathed. And this symbolized the putting off of the world and, and the unholiness inside them. And we've been given, uh, at, in our day, we've been given the ordinance of baptism, which symbolizes both the cleansing from sin and the identif- identification with Christ through his death and resurrection. And, and Peter addresses this like this. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus made a way for us into the presence of God. We've been sprinkled clean, washed with the purest living water, flowing from the fountain of life. Let us, therefore, draw near. What is holding you back from the presence of God? You have been, a way has been made for you. Draw near. Let us be confident, fully assured of the love of our great high priest. Now, pause. If you've been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, probably everything I said you agree with. Maybe, as you're thinking about Thanksgiving, I bored you to death because you agree with everything I said. I think I heard a chuckle out there. That kind of made me insecure. So, <laughs> You probably agreed with everything I've said so far, but here's where the rubber meets the road. If I were able to peer into your private thoughts, if I were able to fully know the motivation for the decisions you make daily, would I find that you really live with the full assurance of Christ's work? On the basis of that assurance, do you find yourself coming boldly and daily into the holiest place behind the curtain to commune in trusting prayer in sacred fellowship with God. And this is why the writer of Hebrews gives us a second let us exhortation in chapter 10. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, as I was reading this week, this week I came to a horrifying conclusion. And it's this, that if the writer of Hebrews had said, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering, period. That would not be found to be very encouraging to me. See, my heart wavers all the time. It wavers all the time. Circumstances and desires, both latent and blatant, cause my heart to walk sometimes as if it's on shifting sand. So I cannot be trusted to be the source of my, say, of my own unwavering hope. I need a different source. Anybody with me on this? But thank God it does not say, you know, hold fast with unwavering hope, period. It says this. There's an awesome reminder tucked to the tail end of that. It says this. It says, for he who promised is faithful. Man, I take great encouragement from that. I, told, I, I can hold on to my faith because he's faithful even when I'm not. He's a man, or he's not a man rather. God is not a man that he can lie. He's never broken a promise, and he's promised that he will never leave me. I've, I've said to you before that most of you have the reasonable expectation that I practice what I preach. That's reasonable. You should have that expectation. But I've got to be honest with you. I've got to confess to you that often I not only fail to practice what I preach, but some days I struggle just to believe what I preach. Life is hard sometimes. And so it's good to know that my momentary bouts with, absolute, uh, with, with unbelief absolutely have no bearing on the faithfulness of God. What He promised... I mean, it might affect me, my unbelief. It certainly will. But it won't affect the faithfulness of God. What He has promised, He has done. He is not waiting for me to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I've said it before. Sometimes I look down and realize I have no boots, let alone bootstraps. 
James says that God is reliable. He's so reliable that he never changes. That were you to look, of God, look at God, he would not even cast a shadow by turning to the right or to the left. So I am coming to the conclusion that I've spent too much time reading things in the Bible that have not affected my actions. I'm tired of living that way. Why would I live that way when he who promised is faithful? That he's going to finish what he started. See, God says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And man, I want to stake all of my hope on the reality, on the fact that that statement is true. So in light of all this, I like the way the Amplified Bible puts it. It says it like this. It says, let us seize... Let's let's tackle it and take hold tightly of the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is reliable and trustworthy and faithful to his word. And if that's true, don't loosen your grip. So one more let us instruction. We find in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Oftentimes, this scripture is laid out before you, the congregation, as the go to church scripture. You ought to go to church. You ought to show up at church. I've done that. And I think that's a valid uh, application of that verse. But if you consider the context that we've considered this morning, and more importantly, the the, uh, the previous nine chapters of Hebrews, you're going to find that, that that exhortation is much deeper than just that, than just another roundabout way to tell you to go to church. In short, you are being shown in this verse how important others are in your life with Christ. There is no such thing as solo Christianity. The Bible's clear in both its commands and its promises that we need each other. How many times in the New Testament alone do you read the, a, a command followed by the words, one another, love one another, uh, you know, be kind to one another, etc., etc.? We need each other. So notice that the, the passages that we've looked at this morning, these lettuce passages, they never say, hey, you need to. They say, let us, a plural, let's do this together. As we've heard the word together, let's respond together. Let's do this together. It's often hard to boldly draw near to the throne of God. I think we'd all agree with that. Because our sin makes us feel unworthy. Our apathy makes us lazy and indifferent. What a wonderful blessing to have brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to encourage us to seek God's face in the best of times and in the worst of times. What a blessing that is. It's even better when we have friends who will boldly come to come with us before the throne of God together. I love that. It's difficult to hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. Oh, but man, how great is it to have believers to remind us that he who promised is faithful especially when we're so prone to forget. Now, I like to take polls when I'm preaching. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you in the middle of a heated moment would be honest enough to say that you have forgotten that he who promised is faithful? Would you raise your hand? Anybody? Somebody? 
Okay, it seems like a majority of you. It's hard. And that's why this third let us exhortation centers on our fellowship with others. I don't want you sitting idly by while I'm growing cold in the fight. Do you hear me? I don't want you ignoring the plight of my soul when I am growing cold, when I'm growing selfish. The Bible's instruction is let us stir one another up to love and good works. I want you calling me on that. Saying, Mark, how come you're slowing down in the race? How come you're, you're not throwing any punches in the fight? Where are you? King James says to provoke one another. The NIV says to spur one another. What a graphic image that is. Kicking a spur into someone's side like a horse. Now listen, I've been in many churches where there was a lot of provoking and spurring. But it was to jealousy and strife and not to love and good works. Success in this means requires that, that we not neglect our meeting together. The writer says that some, in his context, are in the habit of doing this. While this includes much more than church, it includes praying together, fellowshipping together, breaking bread together. It includes all those things, but it, but it doesn't ever include less than church. Our gathering as the corporate body is so important. Stirring each other up cannot happen if we're not together. I can send you warm thoughts all day long, but if I am not looking in your eyes, if you're not looking in my eyes, I cannot truly stir you up to love and good works. Can we agree on that? This has been a crazy year, hasn't it? I almost called that the title of my sermon. This has been a crazy year, hasn't it? COVID has wreaked havoc. I remember being right down here back in March, Doing live stream service. This is the only I only had. Usually, uh, Paul and uh, and David were here with me as we were doing that, and we were talking after one of those services, and and um, we were thinking, how long is this going to go? And they were probably a lot smarter about me than this, David, especially working in the medical community. I said, ah, two three weeks at worst, six weeks. Here we are in November. I'm looking at it, masks. I'm looking at it, you know, people, uh, a, a vast majority of our church can't come to church right now because of sickness and COVID and all kinds of things. And I'm looking at that and no one could have guessed that. And yet with that, as crazy as it's here and, and, and as years has been, and, and we are undaunted in our encouragement to people to be as safe as they can be. We don't want anybody giving, getting sick because of a presumption that they're calling faith. Amen? But even with that, I sometimes fear, if I can be real honest, be real vulnerable with you, I sometimes fear that we're doing more harm to ourselves by isolating away from the body than we would be by coming together in faith while taking reasonable precautions. I'm worried about that. I'm being honest with you. I'm worried about the long-term impact on people's walk with God. I'm worried about the the long-term impact of the life of of any given church if people, out of fear, stay away and don't get it. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not saying, so all of you online come back tomorrow. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'm concerned. It, It causes me great pause as a pastor. 
And so it's a tough question. And we pray for wisdom from God. But, the, but I've come to this conclusion. I, I, I have these kind of insecurities because the New Testament's picture of, a real, of real Christianity, listen to me, you need to examine this in your Bibles if you have not done this. The, the, the New Testament picture of real Christianity is always corporate. It's always communal. It is never individualistic. Over, you know, uh, 35 whatever years of being a Christian, I've met hundreds, thousands probably of people who have tried to and even boasted about trying to live out their Christianity all alone. No church was good enough. No group was good enough. No Christian was good enough. So they were going to be Christians all alone. And I'm telling you, I would sign a signed affidavit, hand on the Bible that this is true. I've never met a single person who succeeded in that. Not one. We need each other. It is fundamental to winning the life of faith, to walking in a way that is pleasing to God. Absolutely critical. So the writer here of Hebrews tells us to ramp up our commitment to one another with this interesting phrase. He says, ramp it up as we see the day drawing near. The day, that word the day, is capitalized because it doesn't mean the morning, when we see the morning drawing near, it means the day of the Lord, when Christ comes to reign and make everything new by his orderly rule. And the reason we should be more committed to each other as time goes on towards that day is twofold. First, the Bible indicates that things are going to get a lot tougher for believers. That's just a reality. Things are not going to go smoothly as the end of of uh, this era and the kingdom era begins, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get tougher. But uh, And so we're going to need each other like we've never needed each other before or never understood that we needed each other before. And secondly, our commitment for one another demonstrates a love and an allegiance towards that coming world and a loosening grip on this one. By drawing closer to each other, by stirring each other up to love and good works, we show that we really believe in three things. The reality, the nearness, and the worth of the world that is to come. We believe in the reality of that world, and we demonstrate it because we now live heart-connected with the very people that we're going to share that next world with. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that? You know, people come and go in churches, and, and you know, uh, people move out of the city and things like that. But do you ever, like, I'm looking at Eddie Weir here. Do you ever stop and think that Eddie and I are going to know each other a trillion years from now? That's a crazy thought, isn't it? But that's what the Bible teaches. We're going to know we're going to have the same friendship, you know, eons from today because we're going to spend the uh, eternity with each other. Secondly, we believe in the nearness of that world because we see no need to pursue what this world pursues because we know that the days of this world and the riches of this world are numbered. Amen. This is not going to last. And thirdly, we see the worth of that world because, and we demonstrate that because we've embraced all that Christ embraces, his body. He embraces those that he have, he's called to salvation. Those he died to save. So our hope is, as we prayed for people at the beginning of this message, we hope that many others are going to join us. Amen. I want to see a whole bunch of people join us as we, as we wait for that day. So as we wait for them to come in, let us together draw near to God in full assurance of faith.
as we wait for them to come in, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. And let us together consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's do it together. Let's encourage each other. And let's do it all the more as we see that day approaching. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to come forward, properly socially distance, and and grab a, a, a communion cup here, and then return to your seat, and we'll take those together. Communion is something that we're encouraged to do as we come together. And... It, it, the interesting imagery of communion is that as we um, partake, we are holding in our hands elements of, you know, that represent the broken body of Christ. And the beauty of communion, one of the many uh, examples of communion, is that um, we we take this these elements that are broken for us. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And what it does is it makes us, in partaking broken elements, into a whole body. Isn't that beautiful? Because we come to Jesus broken and we leave whole. Jesus came to us whole and he offers himself to us broken. Isn't that just beautiful? I love that. So let's do this together with a heart of let us. Let us do this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. In the same way also, he took the cup, After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the offering of the blood and body of your son that that means for us redemption, that means for us the the connection, the the unifying act of placing us in one body to be brothers and sisters together, to to worship you together, to embrace your word together, to proclaim your message to this world together. We thank you for all of that. We thank you for the body that unites us and the blood that cleanses us. So, Father, help us to live in the true gratitude, the true thankfulness of that as we go throughout our week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup. If you would, just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to Proclaim a benediction over you, and then we'll let you be dismissed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I bless you. You are dismissed.